This morning to the book of Ephesians. Again, we'll finish up the first chapter of Ephesians this morning. But I want to begin reading in verse 15 down to the end of the chapter where we will be focusing on the last two verses of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 1. Open your Bibles and let's just follow with me as I read this morning. And Paul, uh, the apostle writing to this local church at, Ephesus, at church at Ephesus says, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom, and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The Apostle Paul prays for the local church at Ephesus. As he does, he asks the Father in heaven to grant this church certain things that he knew and understood they needed. He asked the Lord to give them a greater wisdom and knowledge in the Son of God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in praying that, he asked for three things. First, he desires that God give them an understanding of the hope of his calling on their life that they would understand and live their life as those who have been called out of darkness into the glorious light of the living God. Secondly, he desires that God give them an understanding of the riches of their inheritance, that they would understand and live their life as though heaven were their home. And thirdly, Paul prayed for them that they might know and understand and that they should be fully acquainted with the power of God revealed in their salvation. Paul tells them that the power he desires the members of this church to fully be acquainted with is the same power revealed by God when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead 
and when he ascended up to take his place on the right hand of the Father. Of the Father, this power is revealed in two specific ways, as I preached last uh, the last two Sundays. First, our Lord has been raised, and to sit at the right hand of His Father, where He reigns as King over all things. His kingdom, as we will see this morning, His church, and over heaven and earth. Secondly, our Lord has been raised to sit at the right hand of the Father, where He intercedes as our great High Priest. He prays for us, intercedes for us, sees to our salvation, sees to our protection, sees to our provision, and sees to our ultimate glorification. Paul then prays in verses 22 and 23. Paul then prays that this local church, and thus all local churches, that this local church would grasp this truth as it relates to them, as it related to their church. In verse 22, he says, and connecting everything that has been previously said, and has put all things under his feet. That is, he rules over all things, and hath, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Paul draws in these last two verses the attention of the local church to the resurrected and ascended king, to the resurrected and ascended high priest, and says to them to grasp the power, what it took to get God, to get the Lord Jesus Christ there, and that same power revealed in their salvation, and that same power revealed as head over each and every one of his local churches. The resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ should be and should have an impact upon each and every true local church of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ taught his followers after his resurrection by the power of God that he had been given all power and authority over all, all things in heaven and upon earth. He said this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Matthew 28, 18, if you have your Bibles there, says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, that is, all authority, and the right that I have... And the right to rule has been given unto me in heaven and upon the earth. Our Lord made that statement in Matthew 28, 18. And the scripture says, he came and spake unto them. He spoke to them. Now, the question is, who was he speaking to? There are only three answers to that question that is possible from the scriptures. The first is that the word them may refer to the apostles. Some sovereign grace and particular Baptist in England actually believed that this 
text in Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20 was spoken by our God to the apostles and therefore had been fulfilled during the ministry of the apostles and therefore had no more binding upon any of the Lord's churches till the end of time. You can find that. It's easy to find if you want to find out what they believed about that, but they actually believe that. Now, if the word then refers to the apostles, then so, in verse 18, then so does the commission that follows in verse 19 and 20. They cannot separate those things. And if that's the case, the commission has been fulfilled, and there is no implication from verses 18, 19, and 20 upon us today. We might write it off as having already been fulfilled and go on our way and think about something else. But I don't believe he was addressing the apostles. Some people believe that he was addressing what they call the universal invisible church. And that would mean then that the commission that followed in 19 and 20 would be able to be fulfilled by each and every individual Christian, male or female, man or woman, boy or girl. Since it is given to the universal invisible church, then everyone within that group is then responsible to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And this commission, his statement, I will be with you to the end of the world, is spoken to that which is universal. That's what some people believe. And that's what is commonly taught. If you have commentaries, you may look it up and see. It's a common teaching. But this cannot be true because then the commission, which includes the preaching of the gospel to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing those disciples, teaching those disciples to be obedient to everything that the Lord taught, and, uh, and it would mean that each and every child of God may fulfill each and every one of those points of commission. And we know that that is not true. The scriptures tell us in the rest of the scripture that is not true. It cannot be true. And the third meaning of the word then, them, actually refers to the local church that had been established by our Lord at Jerusalem during his earthly ministry. This is what I believe that he's speaking to after having eliminated the first two. I believe we're left with nothing else but the word them referring to the Lord's church, that is his local church at Jerusalem, that they were given the commission to go into the world to make disciples, baptize them on the, in the authority of the local church and through the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are given responsibility to teach those disciples to observe all things that Jesus Christ has taught. And so if he is speaking to the local church, and I believe that he is, so I should change that to since he is speaking to the local church, he is saying to them, to this local church at Jerusalem, that all power has been given unto me in heaven and upon the earth. The word power comes from a Greek word that means authority, connected with ability. All the authority with its attending ability to accomplish the purposes of God with regard to things in the earth and things in heaven have been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. The next thing he says to his church is, you go and you make disciples. 
You baptize them and you teach them. All authority belongs unto me. And in particular, the authority, the ability, the right, and the power of God has been entrusted to the Lord Jesus Christ with regard to each and every local church that is established. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, says to me, in my understanding of the rest of the Scripture as it opens up in the New Testament, that when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he gathered up his church and said, all power, all authority, all the ability to accomplish what I'm uh, commanding you to do, all the right to tell you what to do, and all the rule as King of kings and Lord of lords has given to me, and I have rule over this church. Remember, when we read Ephesians chapter 1, that Paul is praying for the local church at Ephesus to understand and to experience the mighty power of God in their life and in their church. To grasp what it means to serve a risen Savior. You, heard, you remember that song? We serve a risen Savior, right? What does that mean in practical terms? Part of what Paul prays for is that this local church might understand and experience the reality that Jesus Christ is head over each one of his local churches. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The first thing I want to look at this morning after that introduction is this. In the day in which we live, there's a great deal of misunderstanding over the use of the word body, particularly in the New Testament and particularly in Paul's writings. To clear up that misunderstanding, we need to ask the question, how does the Apostle Paul use the word body in this text? Well, you can easily see that he connects it to the church. Now, if the church is universal, then the body is universal. But if the church is local, then the body is local. He has given him to be head over all things to the church, either local, and therefore the body being local, or given him to be head over all things to the church, universal, and therefore the body is universal. It cannot be both. It has to be one or the other. And my understanding of the Scripture leads me to say to you this morning that the Apostle Paul is addressing and continues to address until the end of this chapter a local church founded in the city of Ephesus. And with the possibility of only one exception, every time he uses the word body, he is referring to the local church. Now, in order to interpret that, you're going to have to understand something about the use of metaphors in the Old Testament. Okay? The New Testament. Always remember, always keep in mind when you're reading the Scriptures, when you're studying the Scriptures, that a metaphor, which is the word body, it's a metaphor of the church, a metaphor does not establish doctrine. 
Once we allow the metaphors of the scriptures to establish our doctrine, we have a great uh, avenue of going astray and embracing all kinds of error. The doctrine is established. The doctrine of the local church is established under the heading of church, assembly, congregation, ecclesia. That doctrine is established. The metaphors simply help us to get a picture of the doctrine that has been established for us. So when Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1 that he is head over the church and then adds which is his body using a metaphor, Paul is helping us to get a picture of what it means for Jesus Christ to be head over his church. And we will open this up a little bit more uh, later. He is head over all things to uh, the church, which is his body. In Ephesians chapter 4, the same book written by the same author, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says there is one body. There is only one. If it is universal, then there is only one. If it is local, there is only one kind. Okay? There is only one body. That's clear. That's from the scriptures. We cannot argue or deviate from what is said here in verse 4. There is one body. Now, drop down with me if you're in Ephesians 4 to verse 11. This, these verses beginning, uh, to, beginning in verse 8 and following and going uh, almost to the end of the chapter, these verses the apostle is talking about what Jesus Christ has done as the risen head over the church and what he has done on behalf of those churches, on, on, of his churches. And the scripture says in verse 11, he, the risen Lord, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. That is, he gave these gifts. This risen Lord gave these gifts to his church. This is not talking about the universal church then. It's talking about particularly the local church. I'm a pastor and a teacher. I cannot pastor or teach a universal church. It is impossible. But I have been given to be pastor of a local church. My responsibility, therefore, is to teach and preach that church. The purpose of that in verse 12 is for the perfecting of the saints, that is, for the bringing about the maturity of the saints so that, or for the work of the ministry, uh, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. See, he uses the word body again. He gave the church certain gifts for the edification, for the building up of the body. Paul reminds us here in this text and in another writing, 1 Corinthians 12 in verse 27, that he is using the word body to refer to the local church. The body of Christ is a local assembly of baptized believers. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, Paul, after giving a lengthy argument on how a body functions, which if you read that text, you cannot possibly apply it universally. As a body functions, Paul says, now ye, plural, are the body of Christ and members in particular. Each local assembly then of baptized believers is 
the body of Jesus Christ in that particular locale. That's how Paul is using the word here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Well, what else does God want us to learn from this text? Well, the second thing is that the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ with each one of his local churches is one based upon the fact that he is head over all things to that church as they relate to that church. And at this point, I want to begin to open up this text as what does the scripture teach? What is the implication of Jesus Christ being hid over each local church? The first thing I want to say is he is the loving head over each church. We do not get out of the book of Ephesians. When we come to Ephesians chapter 5, where we see that the relationship between a husband and wife is uh, comparable and should be in line with the relationship between Christ and his church. It is a loving relationship. There's uh, things that are involved there. We won't spend a lot of time in Ephesians 5 this morning, but it is clear from Ephesians 5 and verse 25 when Paul says, Husbands, love your wives even as... Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. It is clear that Paul is using the relationship between the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the local church at Ephesus as an example to be an example for how husbands are to love their wives. That puts a tremendous amount of responsibility upon a local church in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the church in its relationship with Christ, becomes the example for the husbands in this assembly as to how they are supposed to love their wives. The Lord's love for each local church is the very foundation of all he has done and will do for them. He acts toward them out of love and grace and mercy. The great motive behind all that God has done on behalf of sinners and the great motive behind all that God has done on behalf of his church is that he has loved them. We know the scriptures teach that. I don't have to substantiate that from the word of God. You know that if you have been around uh, the Bible at any time, at any length of time if you've been around Christians, you've heard them quote John 3.16 or other verses that said, for God so loved the world. And that is stated over and over and over again throughout the whole of the Old Testament and New, by the way. Whatever his church may face, he will never waver on this point that he has set his love upon them and his affection upon them. His love for that local church leads him to be their protector. Sometimes it does not feel like he is protecting you but again, if you go by feelings rather than the word of truth, then you will not believe that God has loved you and protected you. If you go by the truth, you will believe God has loved you and protected you. And sometimes things happen to us that we cannot perceive the protection of God. His love leads them, him to provide for her, to sanctify her, to set him apart for 
his use to help her in every every issue that she faces in her life, to do good to her all the days of her life, and to bring each one of her members home to be with him in glory. This all based upon the fact that he has loved them. He is the loving head over his church. He argues, Paul does, from God's perspective, again in Romans chapter 8, where he says in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Where, who is Christ? Well, he is the risen Lord. What, what has he done as a risen Lord? He has taken his place as king, and he has taken his place as high priest over the people of God. What else has he done? He is head over the church. Each local church. Well then, who shall separate us from the life, the love of Christ? Who shall separate any local church from the love of Christ? I know that when you read this, you apply it individually to yourself, and it may be indeed applied to you individually as a Christian. But the truth is, who can separate the love that God has for his church from God himself? Well, Paul argues, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, he says, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Remember the one who has set his love upon us is also the one who has risen and ascended to take his place at the right hand of the Father as king, as high priest, as head over each local church. For I am persuaded, Paul says in verse 38, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers by the way, there's that list of things where Jesus Christ has been ascended and given authority over principalities and powers and all of these things in Ephesians chapter 1. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 35 of Romans 8, when Paul uses the word separate, who shall separate us from the Lord, from the love of Christ. He means t- for us to understand from the use of this Greek word that there is nothing that can divide or part us asunder from separate. We cannot separate ourselves from him. He will not separate himself for us. It is sometimes used in the scripture as the word divorce, as a husband and wife or divorce and separated one from another. Who can do that between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church? No one. No thing can do that. So neither God nor the church nor an individual outside the church nor anything within God's created universe can remove the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his church. He is the loving head of his church. He is more than that, but we begin there because that's the truth of the scriptures. He is also the guiding head of each local church because he is head over the church, and as that, he is an example for husbands. He is the guiding head over each local church, directing each church according to his word and his will for them. In Matthew chapter 1, 
in verse 23, the scripture says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. I say, Brother Pat, where are you going with this? You're talking about Jesus Christ being the guiding head of our church. Where I'm going with this is this, that God with us has a particular application to this assembly. God with us. The fact that the Lord has promised to be with his churches until the end of the world, Matthew 28, verse 20, means many things. We will not open it up this morning. It means among those many things that he is with them to guide them in everything that they face. He is the guiding head of the church. He is the guiding head of the church. He is the governing head of the church. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 24 the scripture says, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Most of the time when you hear this verse or verses like this preached, the focus turns on the place of women in relation to their husbands and how they are to be submissive and uh, respectful to their husbands. But though that is being taught, what is actually being taught in respect to that is that when the wife looks at the local church and sees the local church in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, she learns how to be in submission to her husband. Shall we read it again? Ephesians 5 and verse 24 Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so in the like manner let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In other words, as the local church goes in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, so goes the marriages of that church. So goes a relationship between the husband and his wife. As the church understands Christ's love for them and responds with respect and submission to Christ because love is always reciprocated. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. Responds to that. The husband learns how to love his wife. Watching the local church being loved by Christ. The husband learns how to love his wife. And watching the local church submitting themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, the wife learns how to respect and honor her husband. So the risen Lord Jesus Christ as king and high priest and as head over his church becomes absolutely essential for understanding local church doctrine. So Paul is praying for them. They would grasp, get a handle on what it means that Jesus Christ was raised by the power of God, that he was ascended and takes his place at the right hand of the Father and he 
himself is head over that church at Ephesus. Most people forget that Paul is teaching that the relationship of the church to the Lord Jesus Christ is the living example for the marriage. They separate the marriage from its reality in the local church. What does the word subject mean in Ephesians 5 and verse 24? Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ. What does it mean? Well, you can look these words up on your own, but it means to obey, to be obedient unto, to make oneself subject to, to submit oneself unto. As the church makes herself subject to Christ, as the church makes herself obedient to Christ, those in the marriages in that church see that, that subjection and learn from that relationship how to function in a marriage. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ is head over his church and brings them by a variety of means into submission to himself. He is also the protective head of each of his local churches. In Psalm 46, 1, the scripture says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Proverbs 18 and verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Now you say to me, Brother Pat, you just drew out two texts out of the Old Testament where there is no local church and you brought them over into the New Testament and said that this applies to the local church. How can you do that and be truthful to the Word of God? This is how I can do that and be truthful to the Word of God. Everything said about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament is true of Him in the New Testament. The Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the same. What? Yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So if the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe in the Old Testament, then the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe in the New Testament. And every promise of God, every one, and every activity of God has some, in the Old Testament has something to teach the local church. These things are written for our admonition, Paul said about the Old Testament. For us to grasp the truth of who God is and how he works. He is the protected head, protective head of the local church. He is the providing head of each local church, providing each of them all they need to serve him in the place where he has planted them. Ephesians 1 and verse 23, Paul continues, which is his body, and then defines his body and therefore his church as the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, there's a lot here, and I don't have time to open that up. But one thing this means is that every member 
of that church has been given something for the benefit of that assembly. It's all in all. It's every one of the members. And whatever your understanding of local church membership is, if it does not include every member functioning in the assembly, you have missed something in the New Testament. God fills them all. Every one of them. Equips them all. Each member of the local church is absolutely essential for that church, for the functioning of that church, for the ongoing ministry of that church. Each is given, gifted for the benefit of his church. Each is placed within his church, his body, according to the goodwill and purposes of God. Every Jew added to a New Testament church in a Gentile city, and every Gentile added to a New Testament church, every one of them were important. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Well, in the minds of some, uh, the membership of a local church. Uh, there can be some who are gifted and the others, well, no, they're not. And yet, the argument of the New Testament is that every member has something to add to the assembly. And the implication of that is far-reaching and critical to the function of a local church. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, writing to the churches at Rome in verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you. He's writing to the churches. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And that will cease in us if we understand that we are what we are by the grace of God. But to think soberly, there's that word I dealt with in Sunday school, Soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Some having been given more faith than others, some having been given more grace than others, some having been given this gift, but not this one. But every man has been given something. I believe God's given me a measure of faith, but I have come far short of the faith that he gave George Mueller. Maybe you can... Say, I am up there with George Mueller in the measure of faith, but I can't. I believe that God has given me a measure of grace to function and serve him, but I believe I have come far short in my abilities with regard to men like Charles Spurgeon or William Carey or Adoniram Judson or Hudson Taylor and others like them. I have something from God. God has given me the measure that he has given me. And every member is provided with something for the benefit of the local church. He is the promising head of each church, making hundreds of promises throughout the word of God and keeping those promises on behalf of his people. And in the New Testament, that includes the local churches. Out of, the New, out of the Old Testament, we have a scripture, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? That's the 
question, and of course the answer you know already, and hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? It is a rhetorical question meant for the hearers to say, of course God is not a man, of course God doesn't sin, if he says something, he means it. And so we come over to the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, and we read, for all the promises of God, or God in him, speaking of Christ, are yea and amen unto the glory of God by us. All the promises of God in him are yea and amen. They are certain and sure. These verses are given to us so that we can understand that Jesus Christ is the promising head and what he has said in his word to his churches is true. He has not repented of it. He has not lied to you. He has not said to you, I'm going to tell you this. You're going to believe it and the rug's going to be jerked right out from underneath you and you're going to find out that that's not true. Just the opposite. He has said to you, this is what the scripture says. Believe it because I'm the one who said it. Trust me with Trust me with it. Jesus Christ is the unchanging promise keeper to each of his churches. He is also the purging head of each church. The purging head means that he corrects and purges or prunes every member of the church in order that they might bring forth more fruit. We sometimes look at correction and we sometimes look at chastening and we sometimes look at trials as though they are a bad thing and I understand the interpretation of that, but with God, the purpose is always that you might be made righteous. It is always true that you might bring forth more fruit. John chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, Jesus Christ says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. He's the one that is the farmer taking care of the vineyard. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Why does he do that? It's bearing fruit. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that or in order that it may bring forth more fruits. The word that in this text, that that branch may keep on bearing more and more and more. It is, it is beareth, it is continually bearing. And more and more, this activity of the head of the local church to purge the members of the church is a good test of whether or not he is head over the church. John Gill said these branches who are truly and savingly in Christ, such as are rooted in him, from whom all their fruit is found, who are filled by him with all the fruits of his spirit, grace, and righteousness. These branches, he goes on to say, are purged or pruned chiefly by afflictions and temptations which, he goes on to say, are needful for their growth 
and fruitfulness. He then adds, and though these, speaking of the temptations and trials, are sometimes sharp and never joyous but grievous, yet they are attended with the peaceable fruits of righteousness to the end of bringing forth more fruit. For it is not enough that a believer exercise grace and perform good works in the present. But these must remain or he must be constant herein and still bring forth fruit and add one virtue to another that it may appear he is not barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ who has planted him. What Gill is saying is if you have present fruit 20 years ago and you don't have present fruit today, examine yourself. Because the scripture says God the Lord, the head of the church, purges every branch. Everyone that brings forth fruit is purged, cleansed, and worked on by God so that they might bring forth more fruit. Is the head of this church continually purging it, cleansing it so that you may continually bring forth more and more and more and more fruit. Jesus Christ is the head of each local church. Not me. Not you. What he says is the truth. Are we submitted to him and to his word? Is this church subject to the Christ who has loved them? If you're here this morning without Christ as a Savior, you say, Brother Pat, I'm not sure I want to come under the authority of such a head who rules and reigns over all of his own. I'm not sure I want that. You are already under his authority. All power is given on him in heaven and on the earth. Not just over his church and individual Christians, not just in his kingdom, but over the whole of the earth. Every lost man and woman and child on the face of the earth is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will. In that day when Jesus Christ returns, He is going to gather His sheep on His right hand. He's going to gather His goats on His left. He's going to say to His sheep on His right hand, those who have embraced Him as their Lord and Savior, you come into My kingdom. It's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And He's going to look over to the goats and He's going to say, depart from Me. And you're not going to be able to say no. Today you say no. And you think you've gotten by with something. But in that day you won't say no. When he says depart from me. They depart. If you're here outside of Christ. This morning. He is Lord over all. There is no one else who can save you from your sins. There is no one else that can act as a mediator between you and God as Father. 
There is no one else who can save you and protect you and provide for you all the way into glory. None but Jesus Christ. And so, you come to him. You call out to him. You seek him. Because he is the one who can save you from your sins. And to we who submit ourselves to the word of God, Jesus Christ is head over this church. And the implications of that are far-reaching. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bow before you.